Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Previously on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. You were conscious of the possibility of being mugged. That was proved by the assaults going on in the area. The dream that I had about these two, it was a scary dream. Uh, it wasn't so much turning over evidence or, or trying to rethink things. Uh, it was it was a borderline nightmare. Did they give you any more yeah. details about why they thought they were close to solving it? So apparently it's the DNA evidence. They didn't go anymore, just said that. This is episode four, A Crime of Passion. After the Columbus police made that unexpected visit to my parents, there was a long period of, well, disruption. COVID hit, I became a parent. It wasn't until after the first wave of the pandemic calmed down and I finished my parental leave that I was able to devote time again to this investigation. My editors at work even gave me a green light to spend part of my work hours doing it. That meant I'd no longer need to wait until nights and weekends to do my research and make phone calls. The first thing I did once I had some bandwidth again was put in a call and an email to the police officers who'd interviewed my parents months before. I even left a voice message alongside my parents saying, hey, you know how you said we could call any time to get an update? Well, we're doing that now. Give us a call back. But the weeks ticked by and nothing. No response to the phone call. No response to the email. My parents and I were left to wonder, what happened to that person of interest the police told us they had? Did that not pan out? Had the person died? Hi, Justin. Martha, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I called Martha Petrie, Mary Petrie's twin sister, to check in. We spent a lot of our time on the phone just getting reacquainted, talking about the craziness of the past year, babies, the pandemic. When we did get around to the case, we talked in depth for the first time about forensic genealogy. That's the relatively new technique where investigators solve cases by looking for links between DNA samples found at crime scenes and those that people voluntarily upload to online ancestry websites like GEDmatch. The Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, was famously identified using this method in 2016, and it solved dozens of other cold cases since then. Check out the great podcast Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio for more about forensic genealogy. Believe it or not, there's a nonprofit in Ohio called the Porchlight Project. The what? Porchlight Project. Okay, turning on a porch light. Exactly. Okay. Where their whole mission is to fund uh, forensic genealogy research on cold cases. I'd reached out to Porchlight's founder, a true crime writer named James Renner. We'll hear from him in a later episode. And he said he thought Marion Bill's case would be a great candidate for funding because of the DNA evidence that had been found back in 1970. 
if we could get the Columbus Police Department's cooperation. It's a little parentheses here. Yeah. So my classmate... Martha said by coincidence, she'd also recently heard from a college classmate who knew about the murders and recommended looking into forensic genealogy. And this was her daughter telling her mom that there's this new tool and maybe Mary's murder could be solved. This was another question we had, we realized. Were the police planning to use forensic genealogy in this case, especially since the person of interest they'd found through reviewing the case file had not led to an arrest, at least not so far? Or had they already submitted the sample? It all added up to... We just really needed to talk to the Columbus police. And given that they weren't being responsive to my calls and emails, it seemed like Martha needed to be the one to reach out. Why don't Why don't I write a letter? I'll, I'll, before I send it, I'll copy you. I okay. mean, you know, forward it to you and say, what do you think? Yeah. Does that make sense? I do. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm just going to introduce myself. It's not even asking for information it's understanding their progress what Mm -hmm. or processes etc so that was our plan martha would write an email to the police asking for an update and a meeting and she'd make it clear she wanted me to be there too for good measure a couple days after that call i wrote one more email to the police myself nudging them on my own request for a talk this time sergeant terry mcconnell did respond He apologized for the delay and said, quote, Right now, we just do not have time to participate in a podcast interview. I will say that since meeting with you last, we have reopened the case. We have reviewed the case and evidence and believe we can move the case forward. Since this case is now an ongoing investigation, we are limited in what information we can discuss. Good luck with your podcast. Uh, I do hope your efforts turn up additional information or tips you can direct our way. We will follow up on any information you provide. To me, it read like he was closing the door on talking to me pretty much for good, which was disappointing especially since I'd also just discovered that the Columbus police had recently released their own podcast. It was called The Fifth Floor, and it was about reinvestigating the cold case murder of 11-year-old Kelly Ann Prosser in 1982, a case that was solved, by the way, through forensic genealogy. Here's what Sergeant McConnell had to say in that series about why it was a good idea to do podcasts about unsolved murders. I think it's a wonderful idea. I am open to doing whatever it takes to get the information out, um, share what we do to the public and especially the families of the victims. The more opportunities that we have to let the folks know that we're working for them, I think the better. I hope it encourages them if they have any information regarding any homicide, whether it's a cold case or current, to reach out to us and share that. I was disappointed that his open attitude didn't seem to apply to this case. I wrote a response to that good luck with your podcast email, quoting McConnell back to him. Remember that thing you said about podcasts being a wonderful idea? Still, nothing. I could only hope that Martha reaching out to them separately would change their minds. There was one other update that I gave Martha during our talk. My parents and I had found Tom McGuigan, Bill's roommate, 
and the person who discovered the murders, on social media. My mom had sent him an email catching him up on their lives since the early 1970s when they were last in touch, and she asked if he'd be willing to talk to me about his memories. He responded that he was glad to hear from my parents again, but no, he didn't want to talk about the murders. Not now and not ever. Too traumatic, he said. Another disappointing setback. Of anyone alive, Tom had the best and most complete memory of what happened that awful weekend. But I also understood his viewpoint. After all, he's probably fielded sporadic calls from cops over the decades and has had to relive the terrible things he saw, things no one should ever have to see, multiple times over the years. For the time being, I decided to go in two different directions. First, I wanted to understand what I could about the investigation since 1970. Second, I wanted to talk to more people who knew Mary and Bill at the time of their deaths. It was a long shot, but maybe someone would remember some telling detail, an activity they were involved in that might have put them at some risk, even though from what I'd heard so far, they were both straight as arrows. Or maybe someone who remembered a suspicious person in their lives. Hi, John. Thanks for speaking with me. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. In terms of the investigation, Martha had mentioned when we talked that she had a cousin, John Petrie, who'd worked back in the 1970s for the Ohio State University campus police. She said he'd never worked on Mary and Bill's case directly because the murders had happened off campus. That meant it was the Columbus police's jurisdiction. But she said he'd heard a few things from CPD about the investigation over the years that might shed some light. John agreed to speak with me by phone. He said he started working at Ohio State in about 1974 or 1975 when the case was only four or five years old. As I began working at OSU, you know, I would ask, you know, just when I'd be downtown and see somebody that, you know, was in like in court from the detective bureau. And I don't even remember which detective now it was said, you know, we really liked the roommate, but they alibied. They had an alibi. And, you know, that's kind of the last I knew of it. At one time, there was a, a rumor went around that they, that they may have liked a guy that died in prison. But I found out that was just street scuttlebutt. And there was, you know, nothing factual to that. He said that was about all he heard from CPD in his two-plus decades at Ohio State. My general impression was CPD was really stymied. I know they weren't digging up a lot of new leads. John Petrie said he never asked to review the case file or evidence box with the Columbus police. I, as being a relatively newcomer to the law enforcement community up here, I wasn't sure how it would be taken if somebody walked in and said, you know, can I look at your file? I'd really like to know what's going on. And I'm sure if I said, well, you know, she was my cousin and yeah, we were always trying to make sure, you know, that we tried to keep a good relationship with Columbus police because they were the big, big boy on the block. And they, uh, you know, there was a little bit of feeling that the university should have just closed our shop up and let them do campus as well. He said based on his own experience working with crimes against persons, he's always thought that Bill and Mary's attacker was not a stranger. Well, there was no forced entry that they found. I believe that's right. Well, based on that, you have to assume that they either left the door unlocked, which would be highly unlikely in that neighborhood, 
or they knew one or more persons, if it was more than one, that came in. It seems if you're going to bludgeon somebody with a bowling ball, it means you didn't really bring a weapon of your own or there was a lot of rage involved. That ties into somebody might have known them other than you don't think somebody would just pick a house at random and you know, I'm not sure if they ever found much stuff missing. That would lead anybody that, you know, has investigated those kinds of things to make the assumption that the person was known since it was Bill's apartment, at least to Bill, if not to Bill and Mary both. One last thing that John Petrie underlined for me in our talk was the danger of the neighborhoods around Ohio State's campus in the 1970s, just like Lou Heldman talked about in the last episode. John said at one point during his career, there were so many students getting mugged, walking back from off-campus bars, that the Ohio State Police would post patrol cars at the campus border. The hope was that even if territorial boundaries meant university police couldn't make arrests off-campus, they could at least stop would-be criminals from following students on campus. And quickly the word got out that if you want to do something, that there's a better chance you won't get caught if you do it off campus than on campus. The idea that Bill and Mary knew their attacker or attackers, it wasn't the first or the last time that would come up in my interviews and research. And while it made sense to me that this could have been a crime of rage or passion, I also wanted to keep in mind that that did not jibe with what seemed to be the leading theory at the time of the murders, that they were the work of the so-called Northside Rapist, the man with a pockmarked face that I mentioned in the last episode, the guy depicted in the composite sketches released at the time who would gain entry to women's apartments by telling them he needed to use their phone. In fact, let's take a moment to step back here. Almost every time Columbus police talked to the newspapers about Mary and Bill's case through the early 1970s, it was about it possibly being related to other home invasions by strangers, possibly the Northside Rapist. There were two subsequent cases that especially jumped out at me from those newspaper reports, and they seemed to jump out to police at the time, too. The first was the murder of Sharon Katz. Sharon was 21 years old and a student at Ohio State University when she was found raped and murdered in her apartment in August 1970, less than seven months after the murders of Mary and Bill. Here's how the Columbus Dispatch reported it. 21-year-old Mrs. Sharon Katz was found drowned and strangled in her plush Northside apartment at 1790 Forest Village Lane. Mrs. Katz was raped and her body found floating face down in a tub of water. Evidence indicated the water was scalding when she was placed in it. The second killing was also brutal. It happened on February 16, 1971, almost exactly a year after Bill and Mary were killed. 25-year-old Christina Mitchell and her 8-month-old son were found stabbed to death in their apartment at 900 Thurber Avenue. Again, the Columbus Dispatch. Mrs. Christina Mitchell and her infant son Scott were stabbed to death Tuesday in her Thurber Village apartment. Police sources said Mrs. Mitchell was raped. Coroner Robert A. Evans said that the two butcher knife wounds of the chest killed the 25-year-old brunette. She also had two stab wounds on the head, which Evans said were superficial. Her son, Scott, was stuffed headfirst into a toilet. 
Here's what the Columbus Dispatch of February 18, 1971, had to say about why police saw a potential link between these two cases and the murders of Mary and Bill. In all of them, the killer apparently used weapons already in the home to kill the victims. The women in each case were variously bound or gagged, but with different types of materials, ranging from coat hangers to twine and electrical cord. Psychologists say that bathroom and bathroom fixtures afford a neurotic thrill for some sexual deviants. Mrs. Cat's body was found floating in a tub of water. Sprout's body was left in the bathroom, and the Mitchell baby was jammed into the toilet. But as the years wore on, the other two murders were both eventually solved, and two different men were held accountable. In the case of Christina Mitchell and her baby, a man named John Miller Jr. was convicted in 1974. The conviction wasn't publicly reported, as far as I could tell, until 2017. Here's the Columbus Dispatch from a story about how saved evidence can help solve cold cases. Ohio prison officials had refused to place Miller, imprisoned on a charge in a separate crime, in solitary confinement as he requested. Trading information for solitary confinement, Miller confessed to the murders. Columbus police told Miller to tell them something only the killer would know. Miller told them that he took a camera off a table and took a photo at the scene. He described where the knife was embedded in Mitchell's body. He was convicted and sent to prison for life. The murder of Sharon Katz was solved much later, using, by the way, DNA evidence. In 2006, Columbus police announced that a man named James A. Kiefer had killed Sharon. He'd been a plumber at the time, who'd been known to have worked in her apartment complex, which is probably how he gained entry, though we won't ever know for sure because Kiefer died in 2002 after an asthma attack. Even though those two murders were committed by different men, at least if the convictions are correct, I still cite them here because, of course, one of those men could still be responsible for the murders of Marion Bill, whether or not he was also the Northside rapist. But the only way to know for sure whether either James A. Kiefer or John Miller Jr. or both were still under consideration now, or whether those police theories had died in the 1970s, was, again, to talk to the police. See Brick Wall referenced at the top of this episode. We're going to begin tonight with a rare look at the actual evidence in a double murder case. You might remember this. It was near the OSU campus 35 years ago. Through the 1980s and 1990s, the investigation into Mary and Bill's murders seemed to go dormant. At least, very little, if anything, was reported in the media. But that changed in 2006, when reporter Penny Moore of WBNS, a Columbus TV station, did a story about the murders as part of a series about cold cases. You might remember from my conversation with Martha, it was around this time, too, that the Columbus police were able to find some DNA evidence in the case and submit it to the state prison database. The sample they submitted did not turn up any matches, but it seemed to have inspired some police working on the case at the time to renew their investigation. It is an eerie intrusion into lost lives. The evidence locked away for nearly 36 years, the coat hangers twisted around the hands and necks of the victims, the knife used to inflict dozens of stab wounds, a bowling ball that crushed a skull. The police working the case back then opened the evidence box for Penny Moore and her film crew. As I watched the footage, it was heartbreaking to see the actual murder weapons used against Marion Bill. 
the long wood-handled chopping knife, the unraveled wire hangers, the bowling ball, not an actual bowling ball, by the way, but what's known as a tester, where there are multiple finger holes marked with letters for people to find out which size fits best. Maybe even more heartbreaking were the personal items recovered at the scene from both Mary and Bill. In his wallet, there are still pictures of Mary. In Mary's purse, her glasses, and the rosary beads she always carried. Mary's purse looks so specific to 1970, aqua green with little gold medallions decorating the front. Her glasses are black and horn-rimmed. I would just like it resolved. We want, I'd like answers. And though I'm well aware that there may never ever be any answers. You probably recognize that voice. Martha Petrie was interviewed for this story. You learn very early on that there are no explanations for some very bizarre, you know, and cruel things that happen. Trying to live with the irrational makes the world a different place. In that world, Martha Petrie is a professor at a small community college in Michigan. And early on, she says, she made a decision that her grief would not make her too a victim. I will not be a cynical person. I will not be a person who looks at the world with hatred. Those are choices we make. The one other bit from the story that I wanted to highlight is a quote from Jim McCoskey. McCoskey was a homicide detective for the Columbus police back then. When you see this type of violence on the bodies, that uh, could possibly be a crime of uh, passion. There's that idea again of a crime of passion, that the level of overkill could have indicated someone possibly known to Mary and Bill. Unfortunately, that's all the space Detective McCoskey was given in the report. Hello. Hello? Is this Mr. McCoskey? Speaking. I caught up with Jim McCoskey by phone. He's retired now. I found him through his daughter and was calling him out of the blue, but he was open to speaking with me and remembered the case right away. He said part of the reason he decided to look into it back in 06 was that he'd lived in the neighborhood in 1970 when the murders occurred. Right there at King and High. I wasn't on the police department yet. So I remembered it, you know, from living there. It was wild. I mean, in 1970, you know, the riots over the on the campuses had already begun, and Ohio State had already had theirs. And there were some really wild and crazy people walking around loose in the campus area, quite frankly. He never worked in the cold case unit officially, he told me. Things moved too slow for him over there, with too few breakthroughs. But I would occasionally go back in our but then were the file, the old files, and I would just pick out certain cases and basically, uh, you know, peck around with them. And you know, I, I uh, opened up, went out to the property room, got some of the old stuff to look at it, and then submitted, uh, I think it was a quilt or something there. I actually got DNA. When he talks about submitting it, he's talking about submitting the DNA to CODIS. That's an acronym for the Combined DNA Index System. We've talked about this a little before, but to go into a bit more detail now, it's a system of local, state, and national databases of DNA profiles from past offenders. The DNA in the system is collected both from crime scenes themselves and from people charged with felonies. For unsolved cases, cops can submit unknown DNA samples to see if they get any hits. The problem is samples from crime scenes didn't start being collected in Ohio until 1992, and blood samples from convicted felons until 1997. 
In other words, decades after Bill and Mary's case. So that was, even though I got, uh, you know, DNA off of that, off of that quill, I, of course, I submitted it, but the chances of making a hit, you know, 50 years later is not real good. And that's just what happened. No hits. Not real good. Jim McCoskey didn't remember any really good tips coming in back in 06 either. Mostly people saying they remembered the murders or talking about suspicious people they saw wandering around the neighborhood at the time. By the time he retired in 2011, he said he didn't feel the case was any closer to resolution. Though he said he did think forensic genealogy, which has really become a thing in the last five or six years, offered a lot of hope. I found a few other angles the police have talked publicly about over the years. The first has to do with another cold case. This one happened on March 2nd, 1972, the near second anniversary of Mary's and Bill's deaths. Here's the Cincinnati Post. Barbara Davlin White was found shot to death in her car on the fifth floor of a downtown parking garage at 11 p.m. Thursday, March 2nd. She was shot twice in the back of the head and once in her left arm. The key was in the ignition of the auto. Windows were up and the door on the passenger side of the car was locked. Her purse was found on the seat beside the body with $40 in it. Cincinnati police are checking to see if there is any connection between her death and the knife slaying of a young woman in Columbus two years ago. That young woman in Columbus was Mary Petrie. Barbara Davlin White had been a classmate of Mary's at Mount St. Joseph. Mrs. White was an art major at Mount St. Joseph and lived in Seton Hall in room 238, nine doors from Miss Petrie. To find out if Barbara Davlin White's murder had ever been solved, I made a public records request to the Cincinnati Police Department. They emailed back that, quote, there are no items available for release at this time due to the ongoing investigation. In other words, Barbara's murder remains unsolved. As for whether there's still considered to be a possible link between the two deaths, yep, you guessed it, police talk needed. In the meantime, I found one more article about the case, published decades after Mary and Bill's murders, that gave some details about the investigation that I'd never seen before. Really vivid, disturbing details. The article was published in 2009 in a Columbus alternative weekly newspaper called The Other Paper, which is now out of business. I sent the article to Martha Petrie with her prior consent, since some of the information was pretty upsetting. And then I called her up to discuss it. She started out by giving me an update on her attempt to talk to the Columbus police. Okay, so I wrote the Columbus detectives, you know, the ones whose names you gave me, and I have not heard back from them at all. So because that's now been two weeks, I think I should write them again and send just waiting for you to follow up. Then we got into the 2009 article in the other paper. Martha said she'd never seen the article before and had never heard about the investigative angles it raised. Foremost among which was this, from the opening paragraphs, written by a reporter named Stephanie Grigor. It was February of 1970. The tides of change were only just beginning to sweep America and, for the most part, young women were still being taught the etiquette of the day. Prim and proper took precedence over everything else, and good religious girls followed the rules. Mary Petrie was one of those girls, 
just 20 years old and a college student from Cincinnati. She was dating William Sprout, a 23-year-old Ohio State University grad student with a pedigree to match her own. But on February 27th, police speculate Mary may have done something so sinful as to mark her a rebel and, perhaps in the eyes of a killer, in need of punishment. She may have planned to spend the night with her boyfriend. And the article went on, a, quote, religious figure in Mary's life was suspected to have killed her for considering premarital sex. The source for all this information in the article is a now-retired Columbus police detective named Ralph Taylor. Taylor said the information was based on allegations from a tipster who called the department in 2006, around the time Jim McCoskey had dug back into the case to investigate the DNA evidence. Martha's reaction to all of it? Nonsense. So I think it's the reverse of whatever. It's the reverse of any good religious girls like Mary followed the rules. It seems to be based on the fact that Mary had a suitcase with her that night. So that she had a suitcase is that she was planning to stay the weekend, but she was not planning to stay the weekend with Bill. Remember, I told you we had all of this discussion about no sex before marriage. Martha says she and Mary had specifically discussed the idea of premarital sex several times over the years, up to shortly before the murders, and Mary was adamantly against it. Of course, her view might have changed, but Martha finds that very unlikely. It also doesn't fit with newspaper reports from 1970 that around 7.30 p.m. on the night of the murders, Mary called a female student at Ohio State, that co-ed we talked about in the last episode, arranging to spend the night with her. Martha also doesn't know of any religious figure in Mary's life who would have wanted to punish Mary for any reason, let alone kill her. I mean, were there any religious figures that Mary would have known in Columbus at that time? Raymond Carter, who is now deceased, but Raymond Ray Carter, who was a good friend of my family, he He was the principal of our high school, but he would come over and play pinochle with my parents. Father Raymond Carter had moved from the Petrie's hometown of Portsmouth in the mid-1960s to Columbus, where he became principal of another Catholic high school. Martha says Father Carter had always told her that Mary had also called him either the night of the murders or in the days leading up to the murders, hoping to spend the night at his new high school's rectory. But... He wasn't there to take the call and only found out after the fact from a message left for him. And at Mary's funeral and ever afterwards, he always apologizes for not being there when Mary called. So you've never in, in any way thought of him as being suspicious? No, never. It was like you could think of him as a kindly uncle. In the article, Detective Taylor also said he believed the murders were, quote, torture killings because of the very precise pattern of knife wounds that we talked about in episode two. The wounds were clustered just below Mary's and Bill's shoulder blades. He also said he thought more than one person carried out the killings because, quote, how do you subdue two people at the same time, unquote. Another piece of information I'd never seen anywhere else, Detective Taylor said that while studying in France, Mary had made friends with, quote, two French guys, unquote and that she was planning to meet up with them the Monday after the weekend she spent with Bill. During the original investigation, police found those two Frenchmen, confirmed that they were in fact in the country that weekend, and questioned them. The two men were released and cleared of the crime, 
but Detective Taylor said he wanted to re-interview them. Martha said she'd never heard Mary talk about planning to meet up with two Frenchmen, nor had she ever heard about them being possible suspects. Finally, Detective Taylor downplayed the Northside rapist theory. He said the rapist MO differed from that of Mary's and Bill's killer or killers, though he didn't say how. Ralph Taylor retired in 2020. I reached out to ask if I could interview him, but he didn't respond. I did manage to get in touch with the writer of the article, Stephanie Grigor, but she said she didn't keep any notes from her conversation with Taylor, and she didn't remember any details other than what she'd already reported in the story. I wasn't sure what to make of the Barbara Davlin White murder or the information about the two Frenchmen and the tipster who said that a religious figure had wanted to kill Mary to punish her. But it did underline for me the importance of understanding who Mary and Bill were friends with and what their lives were like, both at the time of the murders and leading up to them. Fortunately, I was able to talk to a few of those friends, including a woman who was one of the last people to see Mary alive the weekend she caught a ride to Columbus. I always felt like the story was the person that murdered her knew she was coming and that she entered that scene. Yeah, I just remember she left that Friday afternoon with a cheery smile on her face and a, I think next time Bill's gonna have to come here uh, remark and she was gone. That's next time on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. If you have information about the murders of Bill Sprout or Mary Petrie, please contact the Columbus Police Homicide Case Review Unit at 614-645-4036 or get in touch with me via our website, ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, is an Ideastream public media podcast in partnership with the Ohio Newsroom. It's reported and written by me, Justin Glanville, with production and sound design by John Nungesser. Our editors are Mike McIntyre and Natalie Pillsbury. Our digital team is Annie Wu and Ryan Lowe, with graphic design and art by Lauren Green. Music is by Beyonce, Scott Gratton, TKP, Lobo Loco, Ben Von Wildenhouse, and Chad Crouch. Marketing is by Matt Ehrman, Pat Miller, Matt Crow, and Anna Garvin, with support from Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to Marlene Harris-Taylor, Mark Rosenberger, and Claire Roth. For photos, a timeline of this case, and a document library, visit our website at ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. Bill.